Big dance off to save the rec center. It's the Digigods. Now here's the two men who came in last place, Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Dance off. That's that's tailor made for a Corey quip. Come on, Corey, give us something unbelievably clever. That was sent in by Stuart Moncure. I got nothing for this. All right. Yes. What? Huh? Oh my goodness, you're you're hot. I mean, I, and I don't. And I don't. That's not what I meant. Uh, damn. Okay. I take any compliment where I can yeah. get it. Yeah. All right. Fine. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was going to make mention of this. When I came back from Jordan, the, the, that was my... I, I haven't been overseas in a few years. Are we and, still talking about this? Why not? Ugh. Okay. So I hadn't been overseas in a few years, so I have not been exposed to the new uh, customs nightmare, in at least in the international terminal, LA, uh, terminal at LAX. Have you have you experienced this whole thing where they where they, it's, it scans your uh, passport and then it does like a retinal scan and then a full body cavity search with the robot arm and have you been through this whole thing? Yeah, I I go I go to Paris. I, it's, it's when you when you go through there's okay. a there, there's this big ATM looking thing. Yeah, that thing. And that's how you get through. Yeah. Custom, well, no, well, yeah. that's how that's that's how you get through the first phase. You still have to yeah. see the man. Who glowers at you yeah. and thinks you're a terrorist and yeah. punches your stamp and says, hey, "Welcome back to America." Well, but but he, the the thing that was really disturbing to me was that having been literally on planes for the better part, planes and in transit areas for the better part of the previous, uh, you know, twenty five hours, um, I wasn't exactly. My appearance was not such that I wanted to have it photographed and then shown to me. Uh, that's a pretty horrifying thing to then have this thing snap a photograph of you and uh, then say, here, you look like droopy dog. I didn't appreciate that. Because how long was that flight? Well, the flight, the, 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 the last leg of the flight is 16 hours. And there was three hours before that in, a, in transit. And there was another three hours before that on the previous flight. Six. So that's 16 plus 6 is 22 hours plus the hour of just getting to the airport. So, you know, we're, we, and, and, and then, you know, getting off the plane. I've been waiting in line for 40 minutes. So we're talking 24 hours. That's brutal. That's a brutal, um, brutal. I, I don't know how people go to Australia. I really don't. I mean, I'm, I'm going to Paris in two weeks. It, the worst is probably when you go to um, uh, South Africa. I believe that is as bad as it, as it gets. Because you have to connect through Europe anyway. There's no, there are no direct flights to South Africa. And there are no direct flights to, say, somewhere close in Africa. You, you quite actually have to go to Paris or London or I'm looking Frankfurt. that up right now. Yeah, look it up. I am. I'm serious. I'm looking yeah. right now. No, because I, a good friend of mine, is, uh, his wife is South African. And um, whenever they go back to see her family... Where, where are we talking? Are we talking Johannesburg? Just as a... Yeah, as Johannesburg, a, okay. sure. Yeah. yeah. I don't think... They, I think then you have to go to Cape Town separately. I don't think they're direct, direct flights to Cape Town. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, I know, I know when they go back to see her family, it, it's, you know, it's like, you know, they're, they're getting ready for a long trek. Well, there are no non-stops. Correct. So what I'm seeing is the the shortest I'm seeing. Now it could be a it could be a 14 hour layover, but the shortest I'm seeing is 21 hours and 55 minutes. There you go. But I wonder how long the layover is. I don't know. It's long. Oh, you know what? Oh, get hmm. this. Yes. So it's a 22 hour flight with only an hour and a half layover. Oh, all right. So basically, you go from L.A. to Atlanta, stop for an hour and a half. And then I guess you're on the plane for that, another 18 hours or so, whatever it is. That's not. That's really not terrible. Oh, that's, to be honest, uh, yeah, it's bad enough. That's not terrible. All right. So, anyway, 
Uh, we had some listener mail. We haven't had listener mail in a while. We haven't listener solicited it. Mail. No, no, no. So, uh, you know what? We do need some Vox boxes. We need listener mail. All those fun things. We haven't solicited it in quite a while. It has been... No, no. Oh. Yeah. It has been an interesting summer, a bit of a dud of a summer. Uh, even the good stuff has not really performed. There hasn't been anything this summer that anyone has really, really gone nuts for, well, except Wonder for Wonder Woman. Woman. Yeah. Right? That's it. Pretty much. I mean, even Ga- even Guardians of the Galaxy, like the, the 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 burnished Marvel brand, took a hit. Guardians didn't didn't uh, heavily perform. It it underperformed relative to the previous one, pretty much the same way that uh, Transformers did. Well, right now. As we speak, yeah. Uh, Wonder Woman, four hundred million dollars domestic. It's amazing. I know. Guardians, three eighty-seven. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. But Spider-Man only two ninety. I mean, not right. only. It's funny the, the times we live in. Two ninety. But these are all numbers that people expected to be better. Well, but these are numbers that they go. Well, you know, it'll do much better overseas, and that will yeah. justify all the sequels. No, I mean they are just they, they do ju- they do justify, but the numbers that we're accustomed to seeing, they're they're not they're just not there. Biggest, uh, the biggest uh, grossing movie so far this year, domestic, Beauty and the Beast. No kidding. 500. No kidding. Million dollars. How about that? Not crazy. More, I, I thought Wonder Woman was going to do better. Well, go figure. Uh, so, in any case, um, very happy for Bill Condon with the Beauty and the Beast there. That's, uh, that's lovely. I, we play that pretty much every single day in my house. I just want you to know. Is, my is, daughter is, insists is, on it. I think you insist on it. You're just assuming it's your daughter. By the way, I, I'm just putting this out there. I know you're about to read a thing. Yeah. Did you see the new trailer for Absolutely. Death Wish? No. I did. Yes, I did. You know, uh, okay, it's so, terrible. Yeah, it is terrible. And uh, I think it was Stuart Moncure who posted that on the on the. Who, oh, that's we just, right. We just did his we did his intro, and he posted the uh, the bit in the uh, Facebook page. Stuart, Stuart, so, Stuart. Yeah. Stuart. Uh, yeah. So the uh, yeah, it's a terrible trailer. But but the other thing is, did you have you seen the whole blow up on Twitter, like saying this is like alt right propaganda, yada yada, so forth and so on. They said the same thing about uh, about uh, Dirty Harry. Uh, yeah, but I mean. I, I, Look, uh, near as I can determine, this is not really the original Death Wish. It's just a revenge movie. Death Wish was not a revenge movie. We have to remember that. The original Death Wish was unusual in the sense that his wife and daughter were killed, and he didn't go out and say, I'm going to track them down and get them. No, he didn't. He just said, all right, now so this doesn't happen to anyone else, I'm just going to be judge, jury, and executioner for everyone. He just started killing other people, like other criminals. Yes, that's the fascinating thing about that made, that always made Death Wish interesting. It's not a revenge film. Well, also, it's a vigilante film, and, that's they're, right. and they're different things. They're totally different things. And also, if you remember the first time he killed someone, you remember what Charles Bronson's character did? He went home and threw up. Yeah, because he was so disgusted yeah. by it. You know, I'm sure Bruce Willis is going to go home and go, "Yeah, get some <laughs> yippee ki Charles Bronson threw up. Yeah. And also, something else to remember too is that Death Wish was very much a, a zeitgeist film. Absolutely. 1974. Yeah. You know, New York was a pit, a disgusting, horrible pit. And you and are coming. Needed that film. You are you are at the tail end of far too many years of assassinations and wars, and political upheavals and riots and and race wars and assassinations, and, you know, and Watergate. I mean, 1974 is is bad times. It really is. It's really bad times. And uh, that people just... I was I was I was living I mean I was when I was a boy I was in New York yeah. in 1974. I remember it well. I was I, in Germany. Uh... <laughs> I was. I remember that well. My my experience of 1974 was the World Cup in Germany. Oh, well, uh, it was not a real I didn't I wasn't living in the real world quite at the time. But, you know, once you objectively look at history. And, and by the way, there is a uh, I'm saying this because uh, there is a new uh, Death Wish Blu-ray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Available for pre-order. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Got to get that. So uh, a little bit of listener mail. Now, if you need to get us Vox boxes or listener mail, listener mail, I can't talk this morning. Uh, gods at digigods.com. Gods at digigods.com. Uh, and Tim Teets writes us and says, hey, guys, seeing as you haven't had a mail segment in a while, figured I would send a letter just a thought. Why don't uh, you, instead of doing a week without a show, like when I was gone, uh, use that week to do a rewind episode, and you replay an episode from your days as DVD roundup. Oh my goodness gracious, that would be terrifying. Uh, I used do we even li- have those? Do we even have those? Uh, of course, those, I got them all. Got really? Them all. Oh yeah, every last one. I did not know that. Yep. 
I used to listen to you way back then and loved it as I still do. Think it would be cool for new listeners to hear where you started. Uh, do you remember? But it's an interesting idea. Email us and let us know if you like that idea. How about you, you know what? How about just a uh, here's what we should do. Yeah. And I'm, I'm I'm saying this off the top of my sure. head, knowing that it's only work for Wade. It's of obviously course. no work for me. Yeah. We could do like a throwback segment where mm-hmm. on a, on every other show instead of doing the whole show. Yeah. We you would just clip off three minutes of an old episode. Yeah. And we would just enjoy it. Hey, guys, before I move on to the latest uh, Guardians Blu-ray, here's what Wade and Mark had to say in uh, 19... Whatever. 24. 1924. Yeah. uh, About wings. Okay. Uh, You're not going to do that. No. Okay. Maybe. We'll see. By the way, do you remember... Do you remember in 19... I I think we've been doing this so long. We have. I have a memory. On the waterfront. That was our first show. I remember that really well. No, I have a memory of me... In 1997, mm-hmm. we may be, this may be another memory that I'm confusing. Uh-huh. In 1997, I'm living on the Upper West Side, yeah. and we decided to do the podcast over the phone. Yes, where that's you true. Would, I, would, I, would just, I was sitting in my, it was, my it, rental it, room. It was, it was the two of us and Tim, yeah. It was really, it was almost like trying to communicate uh, you know, uh, with Thomas Edison for the first time. Or no, Alexander Graham Bell. What am I saying? Uh, yeah, it was, it was almost like. Can you hear? So what we're saying is that we've been doing the show for twenty years and have not monetized it for one goddamn penny. <laughs> okay, is, is that what you're saying? Uh, I don't know. No, I I, I, know, I know. We, I don't know how long we've been doing it. Anyway, uh, so yeah, uh, and then we also got an email from Chris in Virginia. Said on the uh, July Fourth episode, Wade mentioned that uh, Drunken Master is not available on Blu-ray yet. Uh, I don't believe that the original Cantonese version is, but the American version, Legend of Drunken Master, was released by Buena Vista in 2009. I'm not sure the Cantonese version has ever been released on home video in North America, but if so, I'd be interested in seeing it. Also, is Tim mispronouncing Jean-Claude Van Damme's name, or is everybody else mispronouncing it? So Tim Americanizes it, calls him Jean-Claude Van Damme, which I think is perfectly cool and fine. Uh, That's exactly how uh, you would pronounce it if you're Americanizing it, and that is what Tim does, and I defend him for it. Uh, But his actual name is Jean-Claude Camille-François Van Varenberg. That's his actual real name. I've seen the passport because I checked him in once at Air France 25 years ago. Did you really? Yeah. And I go, oh look! I was I was working the first the uh, the did, first. Wait, class. did you know him? No, but I was working at Air France, and I was working the first class check in, where you get all the celebs every so often, you know, like Diane Lane. I, I checked Diane Lane in once, nearly fainted, uh, and uh, of course here comes Van Damme. And I'm like, oh, open the passport, and you go, well, it's not Van Damme, is it? And then you go. Oh, yes. I thought you meant you checked in Tim. No, 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 no. <laughs> I checked in Van Damme. <laughs> And and the, and I remember the thing looking at it. I almost wanted to just go. Do you mind if I call you Camille? Do you mind if I call you Johnny Claude? Anyway, so uh, as for the uh, for Drunken Master Two, uh, yeah, it, the 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 one that's available is the Miramax version. I I just I if you have to see it, if that's the only way to see it, then I guess you know I just find that that cut so badly mutilated and almost unwatchable. It's not the movie, and it's purest form that that I have come to know and love so anyway all right uh, shall we get go- you know what let me let me do some uh, some kid vid we've we've gotten some really interesting great kid vid I can in. fall asleep you do that you fall asleep uh, let's do some kid vid and uh, then uh, we'll jump into everything else you know uh, my little pony I am usually reluctant to uh, push because there are bronies out there a movement which I just do not want to fuel I find it terrifying. There have been a couple of documentaries about the bronies, grown men, grown, macho, manly men who not only love My Little Pony, but they have formed informal internet and actual social networks, like social circles around their love of My Little Pony, and it's uh, deeply, deeply disturbing that that exists. In any case, My Little Pony, Equestria Girls, has a new one out, Magical Movie Night, which includes uh, three shows on it, Dance Magic, Movie Magic, and Mirror Magic. I don't find Equestria Girls all that interesting. I don't find My Little Pony all that interesting, but um, Equestria Girls does expand the universe somewhat in a way that apparently the bronies have not been able to corrupt, so there is something to be said for that. Here's something real cool. 
Uh, DC is finding uh, cool and innovative new ways to exploit both the DC and the Lego brand. Uh, Warner is uh, releasing this. The, this is DC Superhero Girls Brain Drain. This is an original movie um, with all the little DC superhero women as um, Lego characters. And uh, it's not bad, you know? I, I, I find the whole Lego thing a little bit odd. Um, but this is more interesting than some of the stuff in the, you know, certainly in the Batman Lego movie, which was just way too jammed with stuff. Didn't you think it was just... It I was, agree. You know yeah. what? Here's the thing is that I, in the uh, the opening, yeah. was jammed with stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is cool. They'll have this really cool opening to yeah. get, get your attention, grab you into it, and then it'll, you know, it'll have the usual pacing of a film. It was just balls to the wall for, <laughs> for 90 minutes. I'm like, ah, this is, I'm like, this is fine if it's a live action film, but it's a, it's, it's a bunch of plastic yeah. molded blocks. I'm, yeah. There's only so much I can handle. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, but, you know, Wonder Woman, uh, Supergirl, Batgirl, uh, it's pretty great. It's really a lot of fun. Um, you got to kind of get in the mindset of it, but, uh, you know, all things Wonder Woman are working for me these days. Got to be honest. Uh, Elmo, another Elmo's world. Uh, my daughter's kind of outgrown Elmo, I'm sad to say. That was a, it was a fun period. She certainly enjoyed Elmo when she enjoyed him, but uh, this is Elmo's wonderful world, 13 episodes of Elmo-ness. Which, you know what, adults can enjoy this too. Uh, the Furchester Hotel, yes, so fun. Um, yeah, I got uh, a bunch of Furchester Hotel stuff on this, and uh, you'll have a lot of fun. It's really good. Elmo, anything, anything Elmo is always going to be a little bit timeless, even if your kids stop watching. Elmo hates you. Oh, no, he doesn't. So, uh, let's see, you know, let me, let me, let me jump on to, um, I want to make, well, okay. Here we go. I'll do a couple. I'll do the uh, the two uh, PBS bits. So we got a couple of PBS uh, titles here. Caillou, Things That Go, which is uh, as disturbing as Caillou always is, and Arthur, Brothers and Sisters. Arthur's a sweet show. Uh, this is eight stories. They're they're educational and they're sweet and they're and they're gentle. They're they're better than Caillou. Uh, Caillou just still just I don't get it. 13 Caillou episodes here. Caillou's test drive is hysterical, and trip on the subway is hysterical. I just want to point that out. Those um, I have seen far too many times because they keep coming on, but it's really funny stuff, and unintentionally funny, I would add. Now, we get these mashups in KidVid every once in a while, and uh, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is where the... Okay, so DC and Lego mashup, I can, I can get with that because we've had enough exposure to that that, you know, I understand the whole point of that. But this is, this is a wrong mashup. Uh, Scooby-Doo, this is Lego Scooby-Doo Blowout Beach Bash. What? Really? It sounds like an Elvis film. Are you kidding me? Come on, seriously. I'm into it. No. I, I, I would watch that in a second. No, I, if I, I mean, was stoned, we gotta like Scooby Doo and like, uh, and it's a Lego Scooby Doo. I would add, it's not like Scooby Doo in Lego World. No, it's it's a Lego thing with a Scooby Doo Lego. It's no, can't do that. This is a, this is a bridge too far. It's really a bridge too far. Can't do it. Wait, like, no one whole, cares. Move on. The whole Scooby Doo gang. Look at them. They're all Legos. That's, that's great. No one cares. Ridiculous. And then, uh, as far as mashups go, this is one I can actually kind of get behind. Uh, Tom and Jerry, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, original movie. Come on, give it up. Tom and Jerry and a Willy Wonka. No, Willy Wonka. Come on, that's Tom a, and Jerry, Willy Wonka. That's very pulled out of a hat. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, but <laughs> look, 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 look how they animate Willy Wonka. Come that's on. That's terrible. You know, they're, they're, they're going to reboot Willy Wonka again. I know. They can't leave it alone. No. They, they, they want to franchise it. They want to do like an Oompa Loompa spinoff movie. And, so, uh, so just putting it out there, Tim Burton does Planet of the Apes, which is just a bunch of just BS monkey shines crap, <laughs> and that has to get reboot. Yeah. Tim Burton does, does uh, uh, Willy Wonka. Yeah. That's a bunch of more Johnny Depp mincing and prancing, yeah. and that's a bunch of crap, and now they got to reboot that. I think Tim Burton is the man who is single-handedly destroying dest franchises. Destroying franchises. Yeah, well, Alice in Wonderland. That, that, that Alice in Wonderland. That thing. I mean, that that first one made a billion dollars. Yeah. I have no idea why. Are Nor you kidding I. me? I don't know either. I didn't get it. So anyway, uh, Tom and Jerry, uh, Willy Wonka. I am. I am serious. It is surprisingly good. Uh, it's a. It's a total shameless stretch. It. I, I. I get that, but it's actually surprisingly entertaining. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the the. You know, the fact that you enjoy Tom and Jerry and you enjoy Willy Wonka, and it's kind of hard to do wrong by either of them. 
Uh, we've got some, uh, speaking of, we got some Disney stuff here. My daughter still loves Minnie and she loves Daisy. And uh, this is Minnie's Happy Helpers uh, from Disney Junior. And Minnie and Daisy, it's just, it is just relentlessly saccharine Minnie and Daisy cuteness. It is not Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which is where these, these two usually show up. This is just Minnie and Daisy in all of their girlish glory. And uh, they're just doing all kinds of fun things to be happy helpers. And it's good for kids. It's educational. It's, uh, it's well-mannered, which my daughter needs because she's, uh, she now does. You know what she does? You know what she does? She, she'll do anything for a laugh. She will truly do anything for a laugh. She's such a ham now. How old is that kid now? Four. Four and a half, actually. Bizarre. So she'll do anything for a laugh because the laughs, it's like she, it's the, the, the performer is starting to come out. Here's what she does. So we pour, okay, sparkling water. She's been drinking sparkling water since she was 18 months. It's ridiculous. She loves that, sparkling water. Is that water. healthy? Yeah, it's fine. Carbonated water, healthy. It's not carbonated. Little... It's sparkling. It just has bubbles in it. She likes it. She's always liked right, it. Right, right. It's very strange. So I don't deny that. So here's what she does. So, you know, we pour her a little glass of sparkling water and then one for mommy and one for daddy. Okay, fair enough. Now, this is what she does. She'll drink hers and then she'll, like, give you the little little evil mischievous eye and she puts hers down and then she'll, like, grab mine and drink mine. Then she grabs mommy's and drinks mommy's and smiles. Wait for it. Wait for it. Everyone laughs. Satisfied performer. Thank you. Take a bow. Are you kidding me? And then she burps like a trucker. Exactly. Americano. Uh, this is one of those family-approved Lionsgate grindstone animated things. Grindstone, who usually does things with Steven Seagal uh, murdering people. And once in a while, they do family stuff that's animated. Grindstone does everything. That, 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 their relationship with Lionsgate is, is a real barn burner. They are just a money-making machine. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is an okay animated thing. It's not, not terrible. It's not great. It's got some, you know, Cheech Marin and Edward James Olmos do, their, do some, some voices here. Kate Del Castillo. Uh, it, it's basically uh, Americano about a... Um, uh, about a parrot, basically, uh, you know, a, uh, like a Spanish-speaking parrot. I, you know, it's it's the, it's most of the tropes that we get out of animated stuff, but uh, you know, some fun voice characterizations. And Lisa Kudrow's good too. Always nice to get Lisa Kudrow's voice. Uh, and then we have, uh, lastly, Kate and Mim Mim Super Kate. Uh, I still find this a little bit creepy. This is Four Adventures. Um, it's good for kids, I guess. Just big purple rabbits don't sit well with me. But anyway, Kate and Mim Mim's a thing. And then my favorite, last but certainly not least, another Shaun the Sheep, Animal Antics. My daughter loves Shaun the Sheep. Shaun the Sheep is the best. Ardman kills it every time out. Uh, and this is an awful lot of fun. Uh, Bitzer and Shaun and all the rest of them come back. And the angle here is that um, the, uh, the sheep are trying to basically sell the farm and you know, that's your instigation for a whole lot of wackiness and fun. Shenanigans? Yeah, a lot of great shenanigans. Sheep seven, shenanigans? Sheep seven, shenanigans? Seven, seven different episodes here. Uh, and uh, there's even a building a pig video, which, you know, it's not essential. But uh, 45 minutes of very, very fun stuff. You know, they're very short stories. So there we go. All right, Mark. Yay. Let's dive into some, uh, some foreign stuff. Foreign we, stuff. Foreign stuff. So um, last year we lost a remarkable talent in Chantal Ackerman, uh, who very sadly committed suicide. The great French uh, director, and um, uh, you know the uh, her work is not sufficiently known here, and uh, hopefully uh, she did not leave us in vain. Hopefully now that draws some attention to her life and her career and her amazing films. And uh, we dedicated our awards show to her earlier this year, uh, very quite rightly. Um, one of, not just one of the great female directors of all time, but one of the great directors of all time. She really was just amazing. And uh, Icarus Home Video, Icarus Films, have released the uh, hour-long Chantal Ackerman by Chantal Ackerman uh, documentary, which is uh, where she was asked to do a, an episode in the Cinema of Our Time series and uh, basically made it about her. And um, not in a in a vain way, not in an egotistical way, but as uh, as kind of a, a fascinating way of approaching artistry and filmmaking as she saw it. 
And um, it, is, it is really quite extraordinary. Uh, it's unlike anything you, you will ever see. It is very revealing. It is very, there's a great vulnerability to her and a great uh, sense of self-deprecation as well. And uh, what it also does is it gives you a great kind of fascinating look at her body of work and, uh, and her entire uh, philosophy of, of filmmaking. It's really quite good. And there are clips here and, you know, there's even... Uh, there's even a very you know stuff of her when she was very very young. It's it's wonderful, uh, and it goes very quickly. It's just an hour in length. Chantal Ackerman by Chantal Ackerman from Icarus. Uh, really really uh, delightful, uh, wonderful, and long overdue that this finally comes out. So very happy with that. Very true, Wade. You know yep. what we have, Wade. For what you do now? we have? What do we have? We have some Criterion. Yay, baby. Yeah. Uh, Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker. Out this, in was, Criterion. this was this was recently re-released too. Theatrically, really? Yeah, this had in, a theatrical in, release in, uh, in Los Angeles. It uh, it did about four months ago. Yeah, that is wild, wacky stuff. Uh -huh. I did not see that. Yeah. Anyway, this is uh, very much. It's funny because Tarkovsky is a, uh, you know, he's kind of a. Uh, his great works were science fiction works. All of them. Yeah. You know, either allegories or straight science fiction, whatever yeah. it might be. Solaris, obviously the most famous one, but. Uh, but Stalker, which by the way is not about a stalker. No. The guy's name is Stalker. The guy's name is Stalker. It's yeah. about a guy who uh, is post-apocalyptic world. There's a uh, he's he, there's a writer and a professor, and they want to go to this this zone that's been cordoned off for some reason, mm -hmm. right? It was uh, it was a it, it, it was a disastrous event in this area. No one's allowed to go in there, but they go in there, yeah. and they zoom in on this place called the room. Yeah. And if you go into the room, your so innermost desires are supposedly it's so creepy. The room is such planted. a it, it's it's so. Yeah, the whole thing is so eerie. It's a, just a really cool film. Um, the the extras are a little uh, light for Criterion, uh, uh, considering how much we love Criterion. Uh, 2K digital restoration looks pretty good, considering this is a 1979 film and it was done in Russia. Uh, there's a new interview with um, uh, Jeff Dyer, who wrote a uh, book about, uh, about the movie. There's interviews from 2000 with the composer. And uh, there's an essay, of course, as there always is, a little booklet. So this is really good stuff. If you love Solaris, you got to see Stalker. If you don't love Solaris, you, s you should uh, see Stalker anyway, because Solaris is awesome. I love Stalker. I really do. I think it's fantastic. So uh, two other criterions as well. L'Argent, which is the uh, Robert Bresson film uh, from 1983, a late phase Bresson film. Uh, but no less interesting than his other stuff. I tend to like black and white Brisson more than color Brisson for some strange reason. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, but anyway, this is uh, adapted from a uh, novella by Tolstoy, which he has uh, set in Paris instead. And it's all about the um, kind of the, the, uh, the, the life of a counterfeit bill. And uh, it's really, it's a fascinating kind of an omnibus uh, movie that, that does what a lot of omnibus movies don't do, which is that it's not just sort of about, it's not, it's not as episodic as, it, as most of them are. It's not just, here's a, here are a bunch of stories strung together by a single thing, which, you know, Red Violin is the other one that finds a more kind of existential angle to that genre. Uh, this does as well. It's very, very, it's very interesting, beautifully done. Uh, it was uh, in competition at the 1983 Cannes Film Festival, and they include the press conference, which is nice to see. Um, and uh, then there's also a 50-minute uh, video essay on here, which is, is very nice. So, um, and then here's the big uh, Criterion Mama this week. Uh, Roberto Rossellini's War Trilogy is finally out on Blu-ray. Which includes the three films, Rome, Open City, Paisan, and Germany, Year Zero. These are all amazing movies that uh, were made in the uh, late 1940s. Uh, Rome, Open City was made in 1945, just in, literally in the wake of the war. And so it, it has a vibrancy to it that is, is just hard to get in any other film. Rome, Open City was on DVD in the worst transfers for so many years from Image. And then finally, Criterion came out with it on DVD, and it was like a breath of fresh air, and now it's finally out on Blu-ray. And this has been such a long road to get Open City out there. And it is so, so rewarding to finally see it in a format that is, is, is rich and textured, and you really feel the grain on the film. It's just, it's so beautiful. Um, Paisan, and by the way, Rome, Open City, and Paisan were both films that I studied in film school. Uh, but Paisan is really a, a fascinating uh, um, 
anthology as well. Uh, and very unusual for Rossellini. It, uh, it all just sort of episodes that are also, again, very neorealistic in the wake of the war. Um, you know, I, m my favorite line from Paisan is an American soldier talking to an Italian woman in this one episode where he goes, uh, you a fascist? I'm a fascist. Clearly has no idea what a fascist is. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's like one of those Brooklyn soldiers. Like in World War II movies from the 40s and 50s, whether they were European or American-made. That was yeah, Brooklyn soldiers. Yeah, there's always soldiers from Brooklyn. They always talk like, like we, this. There were like, there were like 900,000 young men from Brooklyn who all became soldiers, and nobody came from any other part of the United States. And then by the time we get to Vietnam, they all come from the South. It's weird. <laughs> I don't get it. Interesting. Yeah, isn't it? But there's always the Brooklyn guy, right? Isn't it's it? always a Brooklyn guy. In fact, sometimes his nickname is Brooklyn. His name, he can't wait to get back and uh, see his girl. He's writing his girl. He's got a picture of a girl right here. I'm going to put it right in my helmet. Well, because at the time, you know, look, New York was pretty much the capital of the world. It, the it capital kind of, of the was, country yeah. in terms of, you know, culture yeah. and, and influence and fashion and everything. It was true. all New York. Very true. Yeah. It just reflected what the country was. True. By, uh, I get and, it. of course, by Vietnam, we were much, we were, uh, we were okay being more of a multi-culty country. Yep. Multi, multi, whaty? Multi culty. Multi culty. Multicultural. Great. Don't That's very cute. Thank you, Wade. Multi culty. Is that a thing? Am I out of touch? I, I wrote that in a review once, so it's oh. got to be something. Okay. Fine. Fair enough. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'll go. go Can I tell ahead. you what's happened with my car? What's going on with this your car? This is really making me angry. What's that? I'm only what? saying this because I, I, I see this right here. So I have a Lexus, right? Yeah. It's a 2007 Lexus. Sure. And it's now 2017, and the front and uh, passenger side door locks don't work. Really? I've basically I've basically been running around for the last six weeks with my with my car doors unlocked because uh -huh. I don't care anymore. Okay. Because I don't want to get them fixed. Right. But I call Lexus and I say to them, you know what? I have a feeling that I've had my door locks replaced on this car before. Can you go into my service history, because I'm stupid enough to take my car to the uh, dealer sure. most times, mm -hmm. and I go, can you look into my service history and see, because I have a feeling I've gotten my door locks replaced before on the car. So she says, yes, Mr. Kaiser, uh, we have it here. You had your door locks replaced in uh, 2008, yeah. 2009, 2012, 2013, 2014, and uh, now it's 2017, you say they, that they don't work again? And I said, yes, I, they don't work again, and I'm not paying for it. So I've had my door locks replaced on this car in 2008, 2009, 2012, oh my 2013, goodness. and 2014. So I said, well, I'm not paying for it. What's the deal? I don't know. So I go to Lexus, right, here in there the... There has to be a recall. No. Well, what I did was I said, I'm not paying for it. So they said, okay, go to a Lexus dealer, get an estimate, and send it to us. Yeah. So I go to the Lexus dealer here in the San Fernando Valley, yeah. and I pull my car in, and the guy at Lexus says, you know what, we, are, we talked to Lexus corporate, we're more than happy to give you the estimate that you need. Um, it'll be $160 to get the estimate. Wait, what? To get an estimate? Yes. How does that work? And I said, I'm not paying that. So <laughs> I call corporate, and corporate says, like Lexus corporate, and they say, well, you pay for the estimate, but then if you save the receipt, we'll reimburse you in six to eight weeks. So I go to the Lexus guy in the, in the San Fernando Valley, and I say, so the idea is that I pay for it, and you reimburse me, and, and corporate reimburses me in six to eight weeks. So based on that, give my car back, because I'm not going to do this. That's ridiculous. And so the guy says, he's like a really used car salesman. He says, hang on, let me talk to my boss. So they waive the fee. Nice. They waive the 160. Okay. So I got the estimate. Which they always can. Of course. I, I've given them thousands and thousands of effing dollars over the years for crying out Jesus. So it's going to cost approximately $1,100 to fix both of them. So the $1,100 number is now with Lexus Corporate. Mm -hmm. And they will uh, tell me how much of it they will reimburse. I mean, they'll pay. They won't reimburse. They'll pay for it. Madness. How much they will pay for it. Wow. Could be some of it. Could be none of it. I'm so sorry to hear I, that. I, 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 t I go, look, I will drive this car into the effing river before <laughs> I pay this kind of money for another door lock repair. Yeah. That's and crazy. So, it is crazy. That's crazy. Thank you. Madness. That's, that's, that's my story. All right, we got some. Good night, everybody. Uh, yay! My goodness, we have some. Uh, we have some uh, Asian fodder here, which is uh, it, kind of a mixed bag. Uh, I, um, you know, 
here's the thing. It's just the the heyday of Hong Kong cinema was the 1980s and 90s. That was the Hong Kong New Wave. And in the wake of that, everybody is now a pretender to the throne. And we get a real mixed bag of things coming from all over the region. The Vietnamese film uh, Bitcoin Heist wants to be uh, a cool Hong Kong movie from the 90s. Uh, it's all about, uh, you know, cryptocurrency hacking and everything related to Bitcoin. Uh, Mike Rotman should should have made this movie, actually. He would have uh, he would have been better to do this. What uh, happened to Bitcoin? It seems like Bitcoin it's is... It's still there. It's still there. It's still there. It's actually kind of become a um, an international currency of choice if you don't want to be traced. So if you want to buy things online and not leave a paper trail with a credit card or PayPal or something else, then you do it with Bitcoins. But Bitcoin still has to be owned by somebody. Yeah, but I mean, what you do is there are trading sites where you go and you... You will buy X number of Bitcoins, and uh, then you have a Bitcoin account there, and then they will give you a code that you go elsewhere to buy something with those Bitcoins, and that way it's an untraceable transaction. And then we have the uh, final master from the screenwriter of the Grand Master, which is really pretty much more of the same. Uh, History of Wing Chun uh, takes place in the 1930s, etc., etc. Uh, really kind of feeding the same, the uh, go, going to the same well and feeding the uh, same audience. Some good action stuff in here, some good fight scenes. Uh, no name actors that anybody outside of uh, mainland China would necessarily recognize, but for genre fans, this is perfectly fine and acceptable. Um, what is not fine and acceptable is uh, Jackie Chan's Kung Fu Yoga. Uh, I, this is I, Oh, my gosh. This is just... This, this is the apocalypse right here. So uh, here's the thing. I've always been amazed that, that, every, that all the American studios are just drooling all over the Chinese market because there's another country with a billion people who already have a huge movie-going culture. Admittedly, you have to compete against a lot of homegrown product, but it makes more sense to go after an English-speaking population of a billion people than to tr go after the, the population of a thousand Chinese speakers. That just, you know, Mandarin speakers. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So why isn't India on everybody's radar? Well, it is. It's on the Chinese radar. Um, Chinese filmmakers desperately want Indian audiences for their movies as well. They understand this. Apparently, we don't. So the solution was, hey, let's get Jackie Chan to do a, a movie that will be an Indian co-production. Okay, so they went and they did Kung Fu Yoga. First of all, yoga is not a martial art, and there's actually about 47 section, seconds of actual yoga in this movie. Like a, a couple of people do a couple of poses, a couple of sequences, and then that's it. There's no yoga in this movie. This is just a, an excuse to have a great, big, elaborate, um, globe-trotting, uh, very, very strange uh, kind of Indiana Jones-ish story. Uh, okay, that, here's the thing. That spans China and India. Okay. Yes. Kung Fu Yoga, starring Jackie Chan, not yeah. interested. No. Kung Fu Yoga, directed by Stephen Chow, that's cool. <laughs> I, would be, I would see that. If Stephen Chow wants to do a film called Kung Fu Yoga, you know I'm what? in. Good point. Uh, anyway, this was also Jackie throwing a bone to Stanley Tong, who uh, was, of course, uh, his director for uh, Super Cop many, many, many years ago. And Stanley Tong, ever since, his, you know, when he finally came to the U.S. and then made uh, Mr. Magoo, and then, you know, his career started to sink. He co-created uh, Martial Law with Sammo Hung for television, which got him a little bit of traction. But otherwise, Stanley Tong's career has mostly been in the dumper for quite a while. And uh, this is throwing him a bone, saying, come on, come on back on board. Let's do something again. And it's just, I'm sorry. This is just a completely ridiculous, horrible, messed up movie that... It's just, it's just crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And where it winds up, I won't tell you exactly where it winds up, but where it winds up is so ridiculous. And then they make it even more ridiculous by trying to Bollywood it. Oh, don't. Don't ever. This movie is a train wreck from beginning to end. And I say that with, all, with, with tears because I love Jackie so much. But it's just really time to hang up a certain kind of film. Anyway, uh, there's making of stuff on here, bloopers, uh, you know, a Bollywood dance featurette that is just painful beyond belief. Um, so much money was thrown at this movie. So much money was wasted. And it's just, it's just terrible. Jackie plays an archaeology professor. Come on. Well, so did Harrison Ford. Yeah, Harrison Ford pulled it off. Jackie doesn't. Seriously. Give me so, wait, uh, yeah. if, if you love Grudge and you love The Ring and you love Dark Water and you love all those uh, J-Hard things... People may not realize that uh, I think the original J-Horror film, and please correct me, correct me if I'm wrong, 
The original was kind of pulse. Yeah, I think it was. This uh, yeah. Kur- this uh, Kurosawa film, not that Kurosawa. Kiyoshi. Yoshi. Yeah. Kurosawa. Yeah. Anyway, there's a computer, and the computer asks you, do you want to meet a ghost? And then there's all these suicides. Yeah. And the city is empty. Mm-hmm. And what's going on? Woo! So uh, it's pretty good. I like this movie. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of surreal, and a lot of eerie images, and... Towards the end, there's kind of this cool little twist. And uh, yeah, so I have a feeling that most people who love the J-Har stuff have not seen Pulse. Mm-hmm. So uh, the good people at Arrow uh, have given us a, a DVD and Blu-ray combo set with a bunch of uh, good, good uh, um, special features, actually. Um, there's even a new interview with uh, Kurosawa himself, not that Kurosawa. Yeah. And so I would definitely check out Pulse if you have not seen it. Uh, it, is the, uh, it, is, it, it, gave, it gave birth, I believe, to... Uh, the J Hard trend. It's good stuff. It's all about you know social media and 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 the the you know this this film came out when the internet was sort of not new but it was newish, and so it was it was it was one of the better internet cautionary tales. Yes. As opposed to like you know the net with Sandra Bullock or cellular with Chris Evans. This is much better. Very true. And then the last three uh, foreign language films that we have here. Uh, the first one is a Czech film called I. Olga Hepnarova, and this is uh, this is a very disturbing, upsetting film. But it's uh, it uh, based in well, I'll tell you this. Um, this it's the story of a woman who a gay woman in in uh, Czech Republic, whose family does not accept her, and uh, it follows her very tragic trajectory as a result of that. It's a character study. Um, it is a very, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a disturbing and, and sad film, but it's also very, very, very well done. Uh, worth checking out. It's been at a few festivals. It was at, uh, I believe, Berlin. Um, in any case, it was uh, I, Olga Hepnarova is the film. Uh, very nicely done. Uh, look for the filmmaker to show up elsewhere. And then we have a couple of interesting films here that I'm going to pair together. So the first one is The, fr- the, the Country Doctor. A uh, lovely, just a really lovely, sweet movie starring uh, Francois Clouzet, who is one of the one of France's treasures these days. Of course, he was in Intouchables. Remember, Francois Clouzet was the star of Intouchables, yeah, which is an amazing re- movie, American right? Remake, by the way. Yeah. Well, hold on, I'm getting there. This is from Icarus Home Video. Uh, the Country Doctor is is a really, really lovely movie. It's got f- romance and charm. It's got all those things that you know you just expect in a really, really good French film. And uh, it, it just it it just hums. It absolutely hums. It's really really sweet. Uh, Marianne Denicourt co-stars. She's also wonderful. Everything about this this is just exactly what you want out of a great French film. Uh, beautifully done by Tomas Lilti, who is the director. Now, that said, then we also have Inseparables or Inseparable. Um, this is a remake of Untouchables. No, not an American remake. This is an Argentine remake, and um, it's just not good. Marcos Carnavale uh, is the uh, director, and uh, Argentine movies can be really great, but this is a harbinger of a really, really bad trend, which is a whole slew of remakes around the world. of of Once a film is a hit, uh, usually a non-American mil- then suddenly everybody's remaking it. So not only is an American remake in the offing with Kevin Hart, which is, which is I, I can't even, you know, Kevin Hart and, um, what's his name? Uh, Millie Nelson. Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston. I like that, Brian Cranston. I, but come on, seriously. Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston, do you that's really want to see that pair uh, do a remake? That, that's just grasping at straws. That's just saying our option's going to expire. Let's just throw a check at, at, at who's available. Both these guys? Okay, let's do it. That, 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 seriously? That's not going to work. It's just not going to work. There's going to be no chemistry there. None. 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 It's not going to work. Anyway, Inseparables. Oh, dear. Why would they do this? Argentine remake of Untouchables. Uh, wait, right. it's a film that um, could have been fascinating. But it isn't. But kind of isn't. I just it, It's funny because the, the tagline of the film is, How Far Would You Go?, Mm-hmm. And this film, the dinner does not go far enough. Yeah. It's now um, Oren Moverman. I like Oren Moverman. Very talented yeah. writer uh, and director too. Yeah. This is his little situation, and in the film, Richard Gere, Steve Coogan, Rebecca Hall, Laura Linney, right? Yep. Married couple. They uh, they they have a dinner. 
fancy restaurant. Yep. And the reason they have a dinner is because the couple's sons have done something unspeakable. Uh-huh. And they have to know, they have to decide what to one do. Of those, one of those movies. One of the, yes, one, they have to decide movies, what to do yeah. before the story sure. before the story goes public. Mm-hmm. So that's what, the, basically the whole thing is at this dinner table. And, you know, if you told me that David Mamet had written this, yeah. I'd be like, yes, I'm in. I mean, how, I mean, how much... How much like sexual, psychological, moral, ethical mm-hmm. dilemmas will be hashed out in that ninety minutes? Orrin Moverman, as much as I like him and respect, I think he's terrific. He's not quite that guy. So I feel like the movie didn't quite go. It kind of it kind of goes from you know debate to a bunch of flashbacks, and then it kind of stalls at the end. And I just feel like it was it, it's tough for him to kind of even with the flashbacks, it's tough to. Um, Make a dinner conversation as dramatic as it might be, seem really give it some momentum, you know. Although the editing is pretty crisp, it kind of keeps it going. He does move the camera a lot, which is nice because again, you're sitting at a table for a lot of the film. But um, but yeah, I, and again, there's there's some raw stuff in here. There's some funny stuff in here. There's some dramatic stuff in here. I just feel like it didn't. It, it went halfway there for me. Um, but everybody in it is great. And Richard Gere is having this odd little moment where he's doing these little indie films, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. including this other thing, I'm kinda, Norman. Norman, I, which, yeah. And the thing with Norman is that Norman, uh, that kind of hits upon, there's some anti-Semitism involved in Norman, you know, where he's kind of this, where uh, Richard Gere plays this guy, Norman. He, he's kind of a lonely guy, lives in New York. He lives kind of on the margins of New York. You know, he's not like a super famous guy himself, but he knows super famous and super rich people. Um, and then, then he winds up, becoming friends with this politician. Um, and then you cut to a couple years later, and the politician is now the prime minister of Israel, which is totally weird. And that's kind of where the movie really gets going. I think that um, Norman is, it's, it, Norman's pretty entertaining, actually. It's, 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 it's a good film. And one of the special features on the DVD, not the Blu-ray, unfortunately, is a Q&A with Richard Gere. Um, so Gere is going through a bit of a, uh, a reinvention right now. And some of that might be because, you know, he realizes that he's not going to be cast in The Mummy. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's still yeah. Tom Cruise. Yeah. So, and, and he's not, and you know what, as much as we will probably someday see this, right now he does not play the, the, the head of the CIA in a Marvel film. <laughs> someday he will play the head of the CIA in a Marvel film, right? But right now he's not doing that. You know, so he's now a, he's in this like kind of indie phase, which is kind of cool. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I mean, he's able to, Richard Gere was a guy who was always sort of, um, he had the look for a certain era. Once uh, American Gigolo came out, he was that guy, and he was a certain kind of guy, and he only was able to make a certain kind of movies. And he's grown out of that now, and now he can kind of be the actor that he was never able to be when he was, you know, a, uh, a matinee idol. And I think that's great. I'm, I'm thrilled for him. So uh, a couple of movies here that have very, very similar angles. Um, movies about kids with uh, athletic ambitions trying to, trying to make a go of it despite difficult family and social situations. Um, Wolves is on DVD. It's probably the the least interesting of the two. Uh, Taylor John Smith plays this kid, uh, you know, from New York, who's looking to try to become a uh, a great college basketball player. But he's got a really really rough situation, rough family situation, uh, and a really his father is just a, a lunatic. Michael Shannon just brings the the usual crazy like he always does to play this guy's dad, who's an alcoholic and. Uh, you know, it's uh, just makes everything difficult. And uh, Bart Freundlich, who wrote and directed this, is a very talented filmmaker. This was an IFC release uh, theatrically, and uh, it should be a better film than it is, I think. It's got a lot going for it. I think it's just in some ways a little too familiar. You just don't ever feel like, wow, there's something you've never seen before. You sort of feel like it's all good stuff, but it's all good stuff that's been borrowed from other movies. Many of them better movies. Uh, Across the Line, however, I think is a really, really interesting movie. Uh, Across the Line's on Blu-ray. This is from uh, Lightyear. And uh, the, the director, I don't know who this director is. The director credit is Director X. Mark, do you know who Director X is? That could be Al Smithy. No. Anyway, uh, this is about a kid who is, um, he, he's a very, very talented hockey player. Uh, but he's a black kid, right? And, you know, black people aren't supposed to play hockey. What are you kidding me? Hockey's a white sport. There's what? that whole uh, thing going on. Anyway, he has a chance to play in the NHL. Uh, but he's got, he, you know, everything, 
that comes, everything in his life and in his background is rough. Again, this is like, how am I going to go forward with this? Because I got, you know, there's the girl and there's, you know, all the guys in school and he's got a brother who's, you know, on the wrong side of the law. And all this stuff is, uh, and then of course, his, you know, the girl has issues. And it's, uh, it's really interesting. There's almost kind of a, uh, a moonlight vibe to this in some respects. Uh, not made for an awful lot of money, but really good performances, great cast, and a really interesting story that is allegedly based in, uh, in fact. So, there you go. Yes. Yes. Going in style, Wade, you know, in 1979, there was a film. Yes. Kids love films. Mm-hmm. And there was a film with uh, star George Burns. Yep. And, uh, Which we all love. Lee Strasberg was in that. Uh-huh. Uh, going in style. Going in style. Yep. About a it's a wonderful bu- movie. Bunch wonderful of old movie. guys. About a bunch of old guys decide to uh, bunch of play pensioners. checkers. Play checkers. No, they decide to um, go on a bank robbing. Oh spree. wow! Yes. Really? Yes. Oh bank robbing gosh. spree. Old Wade. guys. Yes. On a spree. Yes. Yes. <laughs> now this, by the way, was written. Into, you know, <laughs> what's wrong with us? So this was directed by Martin Brest, and Martin Brest is—he's the guy who did Midnight Run. Yeah. So the 1979 going in style is cool. Yeah. And it's also again, it's 1979. It's it's it was definitely a film that kind of mm-hmm. hit hit a, hit a little bit of a mini zeitgeist vein. Yeah. Old people, you know, being thrown away. Blah blah blah. Now we have the remake, which is just just a rundown jalopy of a nothing of a vehicle for three just the best older actors. They're even be- they're they're the best if. Compared to middle-aged actors or younger actors, or actors who have not even been born yet, Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine, and Alan Arkin—all of them Oscar winners—remaking *Going in Style* and making it just the most generic, boring remake mm-hmm. you could ever imagine, hope for, which really, really makes me angry. Because even though I saw *Going in Style* when I was like eight years old, I still thought it was hilarious. So yeah. yes, the three of them deliver exactly what you want, which is them being awesome because they're awesome. But it's got nothing to, it's just got nothing to say. Unlike the other one, it's got nothing to say. It's just, there's no complexity to it. There's no deeper themes being worked out. It's just, you know, honestly, if you love them, then this is a completely terrific Thursday night rental because uh, you stayed home from work because you're sick and there's nothing else to do. But otherwise, I just think this thing was just a complete misfire and didn't need to be made. It's too bad. It is too bad. Oh, well. Uh, so and then our last two new movies this week, and we're uh, we'll have time for a couple. Oh no, no, you got something else over there, don't you? I do. Yeah, you do. Oh, it's a bunch of crap. Sam yeah. Worthington. Yeah. I Sam do Worthington and his dog Spot star in. <laughs> that's a local joke. Uh, star in the Hunter's Prayer. So Sam Worthington, we've talked about him before. How he was like he was going to be the franchise king, Avatar, and uh, he did the, the, one of the Terminator sequels. He was the man, and then people realized that this guy is just terrible. Yeah. I've never seen somebody just project nothing. He projects no inner life. He projects no emotion. He's just this weird blank slate. It's just totally bizarre. It is. That said, and he, be- was, and he was almost the new Mad Max. Oh my God! Can you imagine? He was. He was cast before Tom Hardy. What? And but then, what, what's funny is that, be, is that. And then George Miller woke up one morning and just thought, "What have I done?" What's funny? <laughs> but hey, that's true. Here's what's funny. Although I, I love Tom Hardy. I think that guy yeah. is like the new effing Brando. That yeah, guy, I love. Love, love that guy. Great. It's funny how, considering how blankly Tom Hardy played that role or, or George wanted him to play that role, yeah. Worthington would have been just as good. Like, Worthington is just blank. Just That's just his thing. That's his thing, yeah. So, you know, because really, in, in, in Fury Road, the least interesting character was Mad Max. True. However, there are moments where he does some really interesting things. I mean, there are moments of vulnerability and, and surprise. And, you know, oh, and I don't care. Tom Hardy's of these is the greatest the of all man. time. Oh, yeah, I just is. love him. The thing is that, that we have not heard hide nor hair of a sequel. Well, George Miller does what he wants. He really does. Just I mean, this thing that. was up for like you know, eight, nine Oscars or something. It won, yeah, it won like six or seven Oscars. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, a Mad Max movie. That, that but yeah. it's, it's funny how like you know people said when they when they expanded the best picture roster to uh, to you know no more than ten, it would open up the category to movies like Batman yeah. and blah blah. Of course, it turns out that it just opened up the opened up the category to more low budget films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Mad Max is the one. It's the one that got a, that made Ozploi- under the wire. It's the Ozploitation movie that made good. Uh, so on 4K, our one 4K Ultra HD release this week is Boss Baby. 
which you know CGI movies always look great in 4K. I I get it. It's it's wow. It's splashy and beautiful. And uh, isn't Alec Baldwin funny as the voice of uh, of a baby? Uh, yeah, I guess there's a little bit of sort of Trumpian satire in here. It doesn't really come through to the degree that I think a lot of people were reading into the movie. Um, it, it, uh, the movie's not designed to be that, but Baldwin kind of makes, you know, he, he does a little bit of that because he's got his, his whole Trump thing going. Um, this has a little, uh, little mini movie on it and a whole ton of extras that aren't really that interesting. There's a, there's a you know, the Forever Puppy infomercial is on here. Um, and a few other things that are all just behind the scenes stuff. Not really, it's not really that interesting of a movie, to be honest. Uh, it's a funny bit idea, but it just doesn't sustain for the, for the length of the movie. I, I don't think they, they're able to stretch the story out, you know, the, uh, cause it's Stewie, basically. That's the thing, you know? And yeah, I, I'm not a Family do. Guy f- fan, but I love family once you've seen Stewie, you can't really do this, you know? But cookies are for closers, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny, but but you know, ninety-five minutes of this is not funny. So, anyway, uh, and then here are our last two, um, both of which I'm going to recommend. I know a lot of people railed on Gifted, but I thought Gifted was actually uh, a, a good, solid film. And for I have something good and solid. Yeah, well, you know, I thank you. Let's not go there. Uh, but uh, he, you know, Gifted really got a, got a lot caught a lot of unfortunate flack. Here's the thing: Mark Webb had just made two Spider-Man movies. Now, this is the guy that made 500 Days of Summer, went into making a couple of Spider-Man movies, the second of which tanked, and had to sort of get his filmmaking back on track. And this is his way of saying, "I'm not going to do anything with effects. I'm not going to do any of that. I just want to get back to a, an ordinary story." And this is a story. Uh, Chris Evans plays a guy, and I'm not going to give you any details because there are angles here, raising uh, McKenna Grace, who is a, 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 a math genius. This girl is amazing. She's a math genius. And he wants her to have um, a normal childhood. And it is about his struggle to give her a normal childhood and, so that being as extremely bright and, and genius level as she is does not completely derail her ability to, uh, to you know, be a kid and have a normal life. And um, there's something really touching about it. There's some great supporting performances. Octavia Spencer shows up in her usual, you know, I am the, I am the wise uh, black woman next door role, which I'm, I'm sad that that's what they keep pigeonholing her into. Um, like when she played God in what was that movie? Oh yeah, it's like yeah, oh I, good heavens, you know, just let this woman act for a change. Give her something other than you know a saintly Mother Teresa bearing in a movie. Oh, you mean the the imaginal Negro? Yeah, it's just she's become that character, and it's and she's doing that over and over and over, and you know she's got to pay the bills too. I don't I don't blame her for taking the work, but would somebody please write this woman a real part? Like let her be a human being for a change. Give her something flesh and blood. Good grief. Um, but in any case, Lindsay Duncan's in this as well, who I always love. Uh, I, I thought this was a sharp little movie, and uh, it goes along with Little Man Tate and a lot of these movies. Oh, I love that movie! Right? You know, it's kind of in the same vein. Kids that are that are really brilliant and have you know these these parent figures who who are trying to give them the best that they can, even though they're not quite on the same level as the kids. I love all that. And then uh, the Ottoman Lieutenant. Uh, I thought was a shockingly good movie for Ben Kingsley to show up in and for Josh Hartnett to show up in. Uh, this got ripped a little bit as well, but I, I compared to a lot of other films that, that deal with uh, Turkey during the First World War, I think this is certainly on the, on the positive side of them. And uh, the history is accurate. It's, uh, it gets a little bit melodramatic. Uh, I'm not that familiar with the, uh, the actress Hera Hilmar, who plays the, uh, the American woman here, who uh, you know, shows up in this, in this... She's basically got a thing for Josh Hartnett, who plays a doctor. Forget all that stuff. Anyway, um, but the, uh, the, the fact that you're, you're sort of immersed in this political situation uh, that takes place uh, in the Ottoman Empire in Turkey during World War I that does have roots in, uh, in history. I, I thought it was very, very interesting and for the most part quite compelling, uh, certainly more so than, uh, than the, uh, the Christian Bale thing. 
Uh, oh, Star Wars? No, the 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 um, Armenian genocide. Thing oh, that's from right. A the uh, of Friedman's uh, daughter, the uh, Ottomans, uh, yeah, yeah. the Ottomans couch. The, the yeah, no, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> just drawing a black eye. That that was just so unfortunate. But this is a better film. This is a better film, more provocative film. Touches on some more sensitive issues. Uh, it's more. To, there's more stuff to be debated here. Uh, so well worth watching, and especially the actor, uh, Michel Huisman. Uh, I hope I'm not killing his name, who is really, really quite good. So uh, keep an eye out. And uh, let's see. We got just a, a little bit left. Let me, um, let me make mention of just a, a couple of films here. Uh, we got a whole pile of classic films that we're going uh, to have to get to uh, another time. One that I've delayed for a few weeks because I want to do this justice. Really interesting movie. From 1996, most of you didn't know this was this was even made. This was a total underground movie at the time, really worth calling attention to. It is now out from first run features. It's called The Watermelon Woman, and uh, l let's give a little bit of history here. So, um, Watermelon Man, some of you may know, is kind of a legendary black exploitation era comedy, starring Godfrey Cambridge as a black man who who well as a white man who is an incredible racist who wakes up one morning and finds that he's black. Now, Watermelon Man was controversial at the time, still kind of controversial. Um, it's, it's very stylized of the era, so it's very dated, but it's still a really interesting film, and it's, and it's probably the most interesting thing Godfrey Cambridge ever did as an actor, primarily known as a comic, really edgy comic, amazing talent, but uh, that's Watermelon Man. Okay. And that's, we're talking Melvin, the Melvin Van Right, correct, Peoples. directed by Melvin Van Peebles. So, Watermelon Woman means to reference that. And uh, this is uh, quite an interesting, this, is a, uh, this was made 20 years ago, mind you. 1996 was 20 years ago. So, we're talking about, you know, when we talk about um, uh, an era when, you know, we, it's sort of now in terms of LGBT awareness, it's, you know, we, well, we're, this is half, literally halfway between uh, Stonewall and now. Okay, so there's a continuum here. And uh, what this is basically, this is a, um, uh, directed by a, a black woman who is gay. The first such film that was ever directed at that point. This came right in the middle of new queer cinema. And it is the story of the making of a documentary about uh, a black actress who was known as the Watermelon Woman in the 1930s. Now, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really fascinating approach to this, and uh, it is an unusual movie, and it is, a, it is a gritty film, and it's a really, really compelling and interesting uh, film in so many ways, such a, one of the great indies of the, of the 90s of this period, and that's why I'm loath to say that you should sort of class this as new queer cinema, because so many of those films are sort of pigeonholed as, a, as strictly for you know, uh, gay film festivals and things like that, but as a, just as an indie film, and especially an indie film by a woman uh, from the 90s that you've never heard of, a great period in particular for independent black cinema, I think it's really worth paying attention to. And then lastly, uh, Michael Curtiz, The Breaking Point. This is a terrific Michael Curtiz movie on Criterion on Blu-ray from 1950. It's getting in later in Michael Curtiz's career as a filmmaker, but he's still making really, really interesting movies. And The Breaking Point is, uh, is really kind of an amazing, it's sort of like his, his last great movie in many, many regards. Um, fantastic black and white uh, cinematography, great performance by John Garfield, who plays this uh, captain of a charter boat and um, makes a decision that he, that a very dangerous and risky decision for financial purposes. And that's the, that's the setup of this thing. And some great performances here. Patricia Neal shows up. Uh, it's really, uh, it's really quite, uh, quite interesting. It is, um, it's, it's got source material, and I won't tell you about the source material because that'll give everything away. Uh, but the, 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 the legacy of this, what it's based on, that's part of the extras as well. Watch all the extras, all of them. There's some really interesting stuff on here. Uh, Julie Garfield, who is the daughter of John Garfield, uh, does a little uh, tribute to her dad. And um, there's, uh, there's a thing on here from the Today Show that, is, that really kind of makes it all. So I'll tell you nothing else about that. But watch the Today Show piece after the movie. That's what you want to do. So anyway... Um, you know, suffice to say, there was a previous film that this is... Well, I won't say any more. I won't say any more. Just see it. Michael Curtiz's The Breaking Point on Blu-ray from Criterion. Very interesting pedigree. 
but watch the movie first and then inform yourself of the pedigree. Then watch the extras. And then I watch think you'll, the movie again. And then I think you'll be really surprised. Then quit your job to watch it a That's third right. time. That's right. That's what I want you to do. All right, with that, we are uh, we are done for this week. No, no, no. So go ahead, send us your uh, box boxes and emails. Let's get that ramped up again. Gods at digigods.com. We'll see you next week.